If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10, and we'll be picking up where we left off in Mark's gospel in verse 13 today. There was a sibling who was putting together a puzzle that she got for Christmas. It had 10,000 pieces in it. Puppy puzzle, right? And they're putting all these pieces together, this girl is. And she gets to the end, weeks of work, and there's one piece missing. She's so upset. She's asking her mom, have you seen it anywhere? Mom's trying to help her. She goes to her dad. Dad, they're scrounging all around the house. And finally, she goes to her mischievous younger brother and says, I'm missing one piece of my puzzle. And he says, well, that's too bad, but I'm missing 9,999 of mine. (laughs) Nothing worse than missing a piece of a puzzle that's incomplete. I know I saw Candy was putting together puzzles. I saw that on Facebook, and I just imagine Candy Fair, and you would have you would have turned Leonardtown upside down trying to find uh, that missing piece of the puzzle if you couldn't find it. There's nothing worse than missing a piece. It's the same thing, though, kind of with recipes, isn't it? The same sort of idea. How many of you in this church have had some of Vicki Hammett's Crab dip. Raise your hand. Literally raise your hand I'm, by show of hands. Okay. The rest of you in this room, I encourage you to find some of the crab dip. Those who raise your hands, you need to stop pushing and shoving at the church potlucks and let some of the other people in the room experience the life-changing experience that is having some of Vicky's crab dip. Her crab dip is incredible. Christina and I actually think that Vicky's crab dip might encourage our parents to move here one day. They tasted some of it at Christmas Eve, and all they talk about now is, wow, that crab dip was just incredible. Must have more. But I tell you this crab dip recipe thing because the reality is Christina tried to make some crab dip, and it was good. It was amazing, actually. It was so good. I was just enjoying it and really savoring it. And Judah says... And he comes to the kitchen and he says, oh, mom, is that Miss Vicky's recipe? <laughs> and we both laughed because we know that Miss Vicky's recipe is a secret recipe. <laughs> Those of you who don't know, it is a very secret recipe. I am near certain that there is a secret ingredient in Vicky's recipe that will travel with her as she goes to be present with the Lord. Try as we might, all of our crab dips will be inferior to Miss Vicky's because it lacks one important thing. That's what I think, at least. Now, some of you, you think I'm joking about this. The, the first story was just a joke, but this is not a joke. Dickie can't be in the same room when Vicky is making the crab dip. This is how serious the secret is, okay? One thing you lack, one thing, that is... Exactly what Jesus says to the rich young ruler today in our passage that we'll read. And interestingly, it's connected to verses 13 through 16 as well that we will study that children, as Pastor Allen mentioned, children exemplify that one important and necessary thing that we must all have to inherit eternal life. So will you stand with me as we read God's word this morning from Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13, and we'll read through verse 22 today. 
people were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving, because he had many possessions. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Next Sunday, uh, Brother David Hahn, one of our new lay elders, will pick up where this passage leads and is directly into the discussion of possessions and the kingdom of God, how they relate. But we stopped at verse 22 today and are focused on these two accounts that are different but related because they share a common primary point. In order to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says, one must receive it like a little child. Then Mark goes on to record a discussion of the inheritance of eternal life. This rich young ruler asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So you have these two phrases, and I want to show you that they are synonymous. Enter the kingdom of God and inherit eternal life. We didn't read through verse 23, but for the sake of context, look at what Jesus says to his disciples. In verse 23, we read, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth, here's the phrase, to enter the kingdom of God. So it brings it full circle. The discussion with the children, it says, to enter the kingdom of God, you must receive it like a little child. Then you have the rich young ruler asking the question about inheriting eternal life. And Jesus, speaking of this rich man, says how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. So the the phrases are synonymous. We are talking about something very important. That is our eternity. What does it take? To inherit eternal life, or synonymously, what does it take to enter the kingdom of God? And what we see is that this rich young man is unwilling to give up his dependence upon his own wealth and his own works, his own morality, to receive the kingdom of God. He lacks, as our Lord says, one thing. Let's look then at the thing. What is the thing a person needs 
to receive the kingdom, to enter the kingdom, or to inherit eternal life. And what we see in verses 13 through 16 is that children exemplify one important thing necessary to receive the kingdom of God. The children are an example of what it is we all must have. In verse 13, Mark begins by telling us people were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Now, this is kind of an aside to the main point of today, but it fits with the themes of Mark's gospel that we've been studying. The disciples are showing their slowness once again, their dullness of hearing and understanding what Jesus has been teaching. You'll recall just in the last several weeks, some of the things we've been discussing. John, he comes to Jesus and says, shouldn't we stop that guy that's exercising demons? And Jesus says, don't stop them. If they're not against us, they're for us. Receive them, welcome them. Then Jesus, in a house, he had taken a little child. You remember this? And put them in their midst and and exemplified, said this is the kind of person you are to welcome into the kingdom. And then we have um, a time when Jesus said it would be better for a millstone to be hung around the neck of a person than to cause a little one to stumble or fall away. Three or four times now, this theme of receiving someone of lowly status, receiving a little child, receiving somebody who isn't exactly like you, bring them into the kingdom, Jesus says, and the disciples think they know better. They're making a judgment call here. They're saying, you know what? You guys over here, you're not worthy of Jesus' time. Jesus has bigger fish to fry. You can't come and bother the master right now. They're not receiving even the little children. Of course, children, as we learned in the last several weeks, had very little status in society. They're certainly not strong enough to carry a sword, to join a revolution, to be any part of any big kingdom expansion plan that the disciples have. And they're even dependent on their parents to take them everywhere. They're like the middle schoolers trying to get to youth events. All right? They had to have help. They were dependent. Jesus, we are told in verse 14, was indignant with them. Of course, you know what indignant means, but in case you didn't, indignant means very strong anger. He says to them, let the little children come to me. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And then here's the hint. Here's the hint to our discussion today. The one key ingredient, verse 15, Jesus says, truly, I tell you, Whoever does not receive, receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. You see, unlike adults who don't want things given to them, they want to work for it. Children are comparatively modest and they're unspoiled. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these because they're willing to receive it, to receive it as a gift William Lane, in his commentary, put it very plainly. The kingdom of God is that which God gives and that which man receives. The kingdom is that which God gives and man receives. You must receive the kingdom of God like a child. Now, some people misinterpret this passage to mean that 
Christians have to be uh, simple-minded or have a childlike understanding or knowledge or be simple, and they miss the point. Uh, one of the study Bibles that I refer to from time to time, the Apologetics Study Bible, is spot on. It says, Jesus is not commending some sort of unthinking belief to enter the kingdom, as if Christians must be fools. He was commending an attitude of dependence without which it is impossible to be saved. An attitude of dependence without which it is impossible to be saved. See, sin is fundamentally independence from the rightful rule of God. I can do what I want to do. And unbelief, this is profound, Unbelief can be as much a matter of the will as it is of the intellect. What is it that Christians, or excuse me, that children exemplify, and all Christians too? Trusting dependence on another. I love that phrase at the end that I said that unbelief can be as much a matter of the will as of the intellect. Hear me, some of you are just too grown up to ask God for help. You're just too grown up, too independent. I got this, you think. Stubborn. Perhaps even willing to believe Jesus was real. You believe in the historical reality that Jesus walked the earth and Nazareth. Maybe you believe he died. I know a person in this area, let's just put it that way, that believes Jesus was real, Jesus died, and Jesus rose again, but doesn't believe he needs him. I don't need his help. I'm okay. I'm a pretty good guy. Friends, the only way to salvation is acknowledging you need a Savior. That's the hinge point. That's the hinge point where these two accounts connect. Like the two different stories, one about a puzzle missing a piece, and one about a recipe missing one secret ingredient— They both center on lacking one important thing. And the rich young ruler lacked one important thing necessary to inherit eternal life. What was it that he lacked? Trusting dependence on another. It was the very thing being commended by Christ as he brought the children to himself and said, this is the example of what you must be like to receive the kingdom. The young man didn't know. He needed help. He needed help. He clearly didn't know the purpose of the law and his own need for a savior. I hope you immediately saw as we were studying this text a connection to our study of the 10 commandments that we did this fall. We did an in-depth study of the 10 commandments. And if not every week, most weeks I tried to remember to share with you question number 15 from the New City Catechism, which was since no one can keep the law, What is its purpose? Now, that question assumes something. It assumes some of the questions from 13 and 14, that nobody can keep the law. Well, if that's the case, then why did God give it, is the question that follows. And the answer is that we may know the holy nature of God. We know something about God. It reveals something about God when we study the Ten Commandments. And the sinful nature of our hearts 
and thus our need of a savior. The commandments had this purpose, but the the rich young ruler lacked the understanding of uh, the spiritual purpose and nature of the law. He thought he could keep the commandments. He probably wouldn't have agreed with the question. He thought he could do it in and of himself. So Jesus, as we read in this text, started with the second table of the law. Now I'm throwing this around like you understand that because hopefully if you're here this fall, you know what the second table means. But let me explain if you're, if you're new here or just visiting. The Ten Commandments, theologians often divide into two tables, okay? The first four commands are the, related to our relationship to God having no other idols, uh, not putting anything before him, not misusing God's name, and uh, uh, remembering the Sabbath. But then the, the other six commandments, they call the second table because they are about our relationships to other people. So love God rightly, honor God rightly, and then love and honor people rightly. Okay, so Jesus begins with the relationship with other people, with neighbors. He says, don't Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. He asks him about those commands. That's what comes to the man's mind. And don't be thrown off by that word, do not defraud. You're like, where is thou shalt not covet? Well, defrauding is an external way of evaluating somebody's heart. Like, I can't see covetousness in your heart. But I can tell when you defraud somebody, you really value possessions more than you value the person. Okay, so that was the 10th command, externalized. And this man says, I got it. I'm I'm good. I've done those things. I didn't murder anybody. I've never committed adultery. I would never steal from somebody, defraud anybody. You know, I'm not going to lie about anything. And I love my parents. I'm good. I am good. And he was right. He was right. As far as the external requirements of the commandments could go, this guy was righteous. He did not lack morality. He was telling the truth. He'd been a decent fellow. Many of you know people like this, good people who abide by these type of commands. In fact, this guy didn't lack many things. Jesus himself says He only lacked one. Verse 21, looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon entitled, Lovely But Lacking, I like that title, Lovely But Lacking, he lists a few other places that this guy was not lacking. Okay, so he didn't lack morality. He also didn't lack religion. Outward religion, he had it. We are told in Luke and in Matthew that this guy was the ruler of the synagogue. Okay, so this guy was a religious dude. And he didn't lack orthodoxy either. He wasn't a doubter. He wasn't a skeptic. He wasn't an infidel. He didn't lack sincerity. This was not a poorly motivated test like the Pharisees on Jesus. This was a sincere question. And he didn't lack zeal. Notice the way he comes running to Christ. In verse 17, we see his passion. It says he runs to Christ and falls on his knees before him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man did not lack for zeal toward God or the kingdom or the inheritance of eternal life. 
But as I mentioned before, although he had zeal, he did not have, as Paul put it in Romans chapter 9, zeal according to knowledge. In fact, as I was studying this passage, all that could come to my mind was the end of Romans 9 and the beginning of Romans 10. It's so pertinent to this text that I want you to Maybe turn in your Bibles, at least follow along in the screens as we have it on before you. But Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, Paul says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith? So let me set the table for you here. There were some Jewish people in the church at Rome that were upset that so many Gentiles were pouring into the kingdom, coming to faith in Christ that had no standing. Remember, Gentiles had no standing before God. They were aliens to the promises, foreigners from the kingdom, aliens to the inheritance of the promises of the forefathers, and they were receiving the righteousness of God, the grace and the favor of God Almighty. It was as if little outcast children were getting an attention of the father while the faithful older brother was seemingly overlooked. Sound like Luke 15 to you? Children, in a sort, receiving the righteousness of God. Do you see that? They have received the righteousness, how? By faith. People coming with childlike faith, were receiving a gift of the righteousness of God, being justified and put in a right relationship to God by faith. And then Paul says in verse 31, but Israel, Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. The Jews had the Old Testament, the commandments, It was supposed to lead to righteousness and right relationship with God, but they didn't succeed in reaching the righteousness that can come by the law. Sometimes we miss this. Hear me clearly. The commandments in and of themselves were not the problem. The commandments are good, Paul says. They are holy and righteous and just. And obedience to the commandments does produce life. It does produce flourishing. But to truly keep the commandments and love God with all one's heart and all one's soul and all one's strength never involves the idea of merit. Like God owes me something because I was so good. I did these things, check, 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 and now you owe me, God. Because what it fails to take into consideration is that the commandments came after the covenant. We took great pains to lay this groundwork in the introduction to the Ten Commandments series when we said, before Sinai, before Mount Sinai, where the giving of the law came, was the exodus. Deliverance from Egypt, deliverance from sin and Satan, and being brought through by the grace of God, not because they were good, but because God loved them and showed his favor and grace to his people and brought them out of Egypt, out of a house of slavery, and said, this is how to live. So the commandments were never designed to be the way of earning God's favor. They were God's gift of how to live in light of his grace. 
So we need to clear, clarify that the commandments were good and that the, the law would lead to righteousness if they understood it correctly. But the problem is they did not. And Paul tells us why. He makes it very clear. Why is it that the Gentiles are coming and Israel didn't succeed in reaching the purpose of the law? Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. It's as plain as can be. They did not pursue the law by faith. They thought they could do it and God would owe them. They've stumbled, Paul says, over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice the stone, the rock is a him. Hello. They did not pursue righteousness by faith in a person. They stumbled over their need of a savior. They had a zeal for God, but they thought their zeal and their own righteousness would merit them eternal life. The rich young ruler of the synagogue said to Jesus, I've done those things. And Jesus lovingly says to him, oh yes, but you lack one thing. You don't know the spiritual implications of the law. You have a zeal, but it is not according to knowledge. Verse 1 of the next chapter, Paul continues, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and here it is, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. I see in Paul here in verse 1, the same love that Jesus had for the rich young ruler. Do you see it? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they be saved. I love them. I want them to get it. And Jesus looked at him in our text and loved him and said, but you lack one thing. The thing that the rich young ruler lacked was an understanding that no one is righteous, not even one. How did Jesus go about proving this to the young man? He took him to the first table of the law. Oh, not directly, but indirectly. He exposed this man's idol. He clearly had another God before the one true and living God. The rich young ruler's idol, you see, was his possessions. Now we know from other parts of scripture in the New Testament that all of Jesus' followers were not given the same requirement placed on them. Peter had a house, right? That was home base in Capernaum. Mary and Martha had possessions. They used them to help Jesus in his ministry. Levi throws a party at his house for Jesus. So this is not a universal command for every Christian to sell all your possessions. But the point is that this man 
like so many others who have possessions. Now, at this point, your ears should perk. Because in this room, we are very, very blessed. Okay, like many others who have possessions, they often lack the kind of self-sacrificial and dependent faith that is necessary to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Wealth can be, hear me clearly, it can be and often is a barrier to following Jesus. But I don't want to steal Brother David's thunder. That's next week. Okay, there's more to come there. But one thing is clear. For this man, possessions are his idol. He had a zeal, but lacked the knowledge of the spiritual nature of the commandments. That God looks at the heart and not just our external actions. That's another thing we studied as we were studying the Ten Commandments. The three parts of a moral event. Just like a good teacher, I just want to reiterate Don't tire of remembering and learning these things. That it's our character, our conduct, and our goals. It's not just that which we can see out here that is our conduct. That's the external. But the character. Where is your heart? Where is your idol? What do you love most internally? And the goals. What is the purpose of the thing that you do and why you do it? So speaking of goals, the commandments themselves had a goal. The commandments had a purpose, and Paul makes it clear in the last verse of this text that I want us to read, verse 4 of Romans 10. He says, Christ is the goal. That word end is the same word telos, it's purpose, goal. It's that which the law was pointing to. Christ was the goal of the law for righteousness to those who believe. It was always about dependence on another. They were to point to a need of a savior. Christ is the purpose of the law. Belief in Jesus for his righteousness was what this man lacked. Of course, it's far more important than a missing puzzle piece or a secret ingredient. Hear me. Without Humble, repentant faith in Jesus, no one will be saved. Not even the people that look like they deserve it, which is the the contrast. Do you see it? You got the children coming and the disciples are like, they probably don't deserve it. But then this rich young ruler comes and in the next text, the disciples are like, but then who can be saved? I mean, that guy looked like a great candidate. So my closing question for us today is, do you have faith? Humble, repentant, dependence on another. Or do you lack one important thing? If Jesus were here today and he looked you, not your spouse, not your parents, not your children, if he looked you in the eye with love, would he say, oh, but you lack one thing? You lack one thing, a childlike dependence on him. Are you trying to inherit eternal life? Are you exerting effort and trying to make yourself good enough? 
There was a question that I asked often growing up and have asked throughout my life in ministry. It comes from the days of evangelism explosion. It's called a diagnostic question. It's just a way of understanding what a person is thinking about why God would admit someone to heaven. The question is, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? That's a profound question. It's a question that the balance of eternity hangs on for you. If, if you were to die and God said, why should you be allowed in? What would you say? Uh, I was watching a clip on YouTube of uh, Alistair Begg. He called it the Fort Lauderdale question because it came out of Fort Lauderdale. It's kind of near where I grew up. What would you say to Jesus? Would you answer like the rich young ruler? Would you answer with things that you have done? Remember his question. The rich young ruler said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, well, God, I, um, I went to church on Sundays and I, uh, I tried to be good to people. And I, you know, I helped that one guy. Remember he was, he was on the street and he looked like he needed a little bit of money that one time. And I didn't, you know, harm my kids or my, my spouse. And, you know, I was just, I did the best I could. You know, I know I had some, will be I, 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 or will you answer that question with Look what Christ did. Look at Christ and what he did at Calvary. He died for my sins. And he was obedient. And his, his righteousness is the robes that I've inherited by grace. Will it be look at Christ or will it be look at me? That is the question. Are you going to have what every child models for us? A humble, trusting dependence on another? Or will you dare hold up your filthy rags of good deeds and say, are these good enough? You see, the answer to the man's question didn't actually come in verse 21. It came in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Hear it. Jesus makes it very clear back in Mark 10 and verse 18. No one is good except God alone. If you think you're good enough on your own, you already lack the one important thing. But if by faith you will repent of your sin, acknowledge you're a sinner who has not kept the commandments in their full purpose, the spiritual and the external and the purpose of them, the goal of them, If you don't acknowledge that you need someone else, the perfect Lamb of God who would take away our sins, like the song said, like Pastor Alan reminded us of, then you won't be saved unless your faith and dependence is on Him. Let me close with Romans chapter 10, where we've kind of piggybacked on today. The scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Go to the rock. Go to that rock and don't stumble over it. Believe in him, depend on him. And if you will, you will be saved for there's no distinction 
between Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. Remember, the Gentiles, they were like the little children. You could have come from a religious home. You could have had religious parents, a father who was a pastor, a grandfather who was a deacon. Whatever the case is, it doesn't matter where you came from. It matters what about you? Do you believe? Do you depend? Is your faith in Christ? There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Do you see the riches are given? You have to receive it. Lay down your rich young ruler's stuff and come and receive a kingdom that will never fade and never perish. He bestows his riches on all who call on him. And verse 13, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You have to call on him. You have to depend on him. Put your faith in Jesus. Forget your status. Forget your works. Forget what others think about you. Forget your possessions. You can't take the U-Haul with you when you go. Do you have Jesus? And is your faith in him alone? And if it's not, I urge you, call on him today. Scripture says, Now is the time of salvation. Be saved by faith in Jesus today. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift that you bestow on all who call on the name of your Son, Jesus. What a gift of grace. And incredible love that you would send Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins. Father, I pray that even now, someone here whose heart had been proud, whose heart had been independent, would lay aside their pride and independence and put their faith and trust in what Jesus has done and nothing else. It's not Jesus and my good works. It's not Jesus plus me being a good church member. It's Jesus Christ alone and his blood shed on Calvary for our sins. Father, I pray that someone here today would place their faith and trust in him. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to live by faith. Teach us to live in this constant state of dependence, knowing it's not the good we do, It's the works you've called us to and enable us to do. Lord, may we always live by faith because that's what Habakkuk said and that's what Paul said at the beginning of Romans. The righteous will live by faith. So Lord, give us all a spirit of humility. Give us all a spirit of dependent trust. Lord, may we stop relying on on what we can do, and fully rely on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.